0: Friends, welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, your host for the next hour of radio transmission here on Republic Broadcasting. I am the host of Corbett Report Radio, and I'm here each and every weeknight at nine PM Central. So I thank you for tuning in for tonight's conversation. Tonight we have an interesting guest on the line once again. Tonight we're going to be talking to Niall Bowie, and for those who want to play along at home, you can follow along at NileBowie.com, which is the website of Nile Bowie, a American writer and photographer. He's a contributor to the Center for Research on Globalization, along with yours truly. And he also contributes to uh, Land Destroyer Report and other publications. And he talks about geopolitics and, well, uh, concentrates quite a bit on the Asia Pacific region, which is becoming more and more important in the 21st century. So without further ado, Niall Bowie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us all tonight.
1: Thank you again for having me on the show, James. It's been a a big fan for a while, and it's just—it's uh, pretty excellent to be able to take part in the show. As many of your other uh, interviews are very thought-provoking, so it's well, excellent hope, to be on.
0: I, I trust this one will be no different, and uh, and and certainly you have uh, done quite a quite an incredible range of work over at NileBowie.com. So I hope people will check that out and and take a look at some of the work that you've done in the past including uh, such things as uh, covering the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal, which I imagine few of the people out there have even heard anything about, unfortunately, and talking about Iran and Syria and uh, China and all sorts of really pressing topics. But uh, before we get into all of that, perhaps we should just talk a little bit about yourself and your own background, where you came from and uh, how it is you came to start the website.
1: Well sure, uh the the focus on the Asia Pacific region is because I'm I'm based in Kuala Lumpur, I'm based in Malaysia. Uh me personally, I I'm a photojournalist. I started shooting a couple of years ago, uh and due to basically, you know, a uh limitation of funds and things like that to be able to travel freely due to my young age. I'm 23 and at the time I started shooting I was 18. Uh I didn't really have the opportunity to sort of uh you know, fund my travels through photography. So I had to fund them in other ways. And um, over time, uh, when traveling so often to produce the kind of photojournalism I wanted to produce uh, wasn't really viable, I started to get more into the writing and started to get more into the blogosphere and things like that. And over time, it's it's sort of become the main thing I'm doing. And, and now I've got a, a thing with Global Research TV, and every week I'm sort of producing some video clips for them. Uh, just about every week, uh, so it's sort of developed into this kind of now i 'm going into broadcasting and and more multi more of a multimedia front, which is great, but doing what i 'm doing is really empowering at the end of the day because you know I find a subject that i 'm interested in or i'm curious to know more about that i don 't really have a lot of prior knowledge uh, on, and what I do is I just sit for a couple days and I just research, I read a lot of different press releases, I check out a lot of different analysis, and I sort of draw my own conclusions and write up what i think makes sense so that has uh, that has caught on and uh, my writings have been published many different websites uh but that's basically just you know a lot of it has just been inspired by seeing other you know uh c- civilian media i guess i don't know what you want to call it but but seeing that and sort of getting inspiration from that and you know just starting my own thing so
0: that's sort of how it came about Well, that that is so positive to hear, and I hope that that message will resonate with the listeners because I'm always imploring everyone who possibly can to get involved with the citizen media because obviously we just have to roll up our sleeves and get to it, and that's the kind of spirit that will get things done. And so it is great to see another example of someone who didn't really think he was going to end up doing this just uh, ending up in in doing this and that's exactly my story so
1: And let me tell you James like uh, the, the the emphasis you put on open source information I found to be really inspiring and just the fact that you have a show you know how to make the corebet report it's just you know, it's, it's really pushing people in the right direction. I really respect what you're doing. It's great.
0: Well, excellent. Well, I hope it, it does resonate with the people out there. And uh, we're coming up against the first break, so we're going to take a short break. But we'll start getting into the meat and potatoes, uh, talking about the Asia-Pacific century after this break. Tonight, we are talking to Niall Bowie of nilebowie.com, and we're going to be talking about the range of subjects that he covers at that website. So once again, if you want to check that out, that's NiallBowie.com, N-I-L-E-B-O-W-I-E. So Niall, I'd love to start talking about uh, China and its role in uh, really coming to the front and center of the stage, as it were, on the geopolitical stage. But before we get into that, I would really like to talk a little bit about the... Uh, a war crimes tribunal which was recently held in Kuala Lumpur, which uh, unfortunately did not get a lot of coverage, but was, uh, as I understand, quite interesting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that conference and what took place there?
1: All right, excellent. Well, basically, uh, Michelle Chosodovsky, Professor Chosodovsky of Global Research, he happened to be in town now. I didn't actually know the the, the uh, tribunal was taking place, so that kind of a, is a good indication of how little press coverage, uh, you know, was allotted to it. But he sent me an email uh, the morning before it uh, took place, he invited me to come down. And uh, basically, this was organized by uh, various different Malaysian NGOs, one of them being uh, the Perdana Global Peace Foundation, which is headed by the former Malaysian Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamed, who has uh made some pretty provocative statements he's done things like uh, question 911 and and uh he's been very vocal about uh, the the Israel Palestine situation as well so uh basically what this was was a tribunal uh, that that was uh carried out over a couple of days about a week uh and we uh we basically had the opportunity to hear first hand accounts of, of people who have you know very Harrowing experiences, you know, being detained in secret prisons in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and elsewhere. So, I mean, I, I'm sure many of your familiars or uh, your listeners are familiar with what uh, took place in these uh, these secret prisons. Uh, but uh, what the what the court basically uh, came to was the fact that these uh, it was it was Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Dick Cheney, uh, George W. Bush, and several of the Bush administration's legal advisors. Uh, and they were found unanimously guilty unsurprisingly. So, unfortunately, there, there hasn't been a lot of news about this in the Malaysian press, uh, and not a lot of international, uh, outlets have picked it up. It's, it's, you know, it's just basically faded into obscurity, unfortunately. But, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it shows the double standard of, uh, of, you know, institutions like the International Criminal Court, for example, who, you know, indict figures like Omar al-Bashir in Sudan. I support the guy, but, you know, when you have Israel uh, basically funneling money into all the different you know, rebel groups in, in operating in the southern part of Sudan who uh, are eyeing to take down the government of Khartoum, you know, that is eventually going to, uh, it reflects the situation in Syria as well, I mean. Um, so, I mean, the situation is is, is is very politicized, I think, in many ways. Uh, and the fact that they, the International Criminal Court basically didn't recognize uh, the the decree of the the KL Tribunal here, although they they uh, they ran the court uh, in a way that was uh, you know totally legal and and they had a very legitimate evidence. It's just a little bit depressing that that has not really gotten more light, unfortunately. But we did a nice uh, video piece on Global Research TV about it, and I hope people will go and check that out for a little bit more uh, insight. Now uh, I prepared a a lot for this show. I don't think we'll be able to get. Everything into uh, the program today, but uh, just before we get into the the real meat and potato stuff there's been some some interesting developments in Latin America and Paraguay, uh, and I want to just discuss those briefly because they're pretty significant and they could springboard into something bigger
0: so all right go ahead
1: yeah so it, it's recently it's Fernando Lugo who's a former president of Paraguay he's been basically uh, legally impeached by the uh, elite dominated the the Paraguayan 1%, the Paraguayan Congress. He was given less than 24 hours to prepare and only two hours to present a defense before his impeachment proceedings. And in Paraguay, uh, this is Central South America, the poor and working population in Paraguay heavily supported this man, President Lugo. Uh, He was the country's first democratically elected leftist leader, and they saw him as someone who generally defended their interest against the the right-wing elite. Now, Lugo was targeted for removal basically due to his leftist affiliations. He, he controversially allowed leftist parties to hold political meetings in an army base in 2009, which was technically illegal. Uh, he allowed about 3,000 squatters to uh, illegally occupy a contested property. I think it was a Brazilian-owned soybean farm because they had no land, nowhere to go, etc. So uh, the, the government also failed to capture members of a leftist guerrilla group. That's the Par- Paraguayan People's Army among other things. So uh, President Lugo, he, he chose to closely align himself with Paraguay's left, which represents the, the working and, and poor classes of the country who, like many other Latin American countries, they choose socialism as their form of political expression. And uh, Paraguay's uh, right wing and, and financial elite have had a standing relationship with the United States. And the, the Paraguayan military, for example, has been funded and trained by the United States Department of Defense for for decades, for example. And, you know, what really looks to me like Lugo's real crime is turning away from corporate interests and doing things to, to empower Paraguay's poor. Uh, he closely aligned himself with regional governments, which had worked, you know, uh, towards economic independence from the United States, most prominently Venezuela. Uh, and, and most importantly, perhaps, is that in 2009, President Lugo forbid the building of a U.S. military base in Paraguay. So in the meantime, he's formed his own Uh, a parallel uh, cabinet, and he's attacked the legitimacy of the Paraguayan Congress. And uh, Hugo Chavez, as well as some other regional leaders, have uh, talked of imposing sanctions. And as of right now, I think uh, the oil trade to Paraguay has been halted in protest. Now, concurrently as this happened, something else really interesting happened. So following these events, the political council of the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America issued a resolution for the immediate withdrawal of USAID uh, from member countries of the alliance. So that's Venezuela, that's Bolivia, Cuba, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and the island of Dominica. So the organization accused USAID of financing non-governmental organizations, media institutions, political leaders, actions, projects, which were basically seen to destabilize the legitimate governments of those target nations, which don't share common interests with Washington, while familiarly operating under the pretext of planning and and administering uh, economic and humanitarian assistance. So I wanted to bring this up because that's very significant. You know, anyone who's followed the Arab Spring closely and honestly, and, and has done a lot of research on it, knows that the U.S. government, through various front groups, has funneled millions of dollars into training dissidents, training opposition groups, and all of these various things which allowed the, the Arab Spring to, you know, have such a momentum, have the momentum that it did. So it's very interesting that this is going on in South America at the moment. And in Bolivia, concurrently, there's talk of another possible coup attempt uh, where most of the nation's police force has gone on strike in protest of low wages. So these are officers who have donned civilian clothing. They've have begun ransacking police departments, they've hurled rocks, smashed windows at the national police headquarters, and they've, they've demonstrated outside the gates of the, the guarded presidential palace. Uh, and in this country, it's it's President Evo Morales, another leftist government aligned with Chavez, and, and uh, he's accused the police of attempting to engage in a possible coup attempt, because these officers have been stockpiling weapons, and they've been pressuring other military units to turn over their arms to them. So, as a result, the government has sent in the military to carry out police duties and res- restore order, and you know, things like private banks, they've closed their doors d- due to security concerns. So it's a really tense situation right now, and, and uh, I thought it was really worth bringing up because this, this could you know, become something a lot bigger, as we've seen with uh, the fact that they've blocked you know, USAID, which they perceive to be funneling funds to the opposition, is a, is a pretty great indication that you know something like this is, is on the precipice, if you get what I mean.
0: I certainly do, and it certainly doesn't really come as a shock that, uh, that organizations like USAID are being fingered as the, maybe the, the back door for this type of uh, dissent and protest to be whipped up in a country. I think we've seen that quite a bit over the last uh, several years at the very least. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's all extremely important developments, so I'm glad you've got your eye on them. Um, sure. What do you think is the likely uh, outcome of this, uh, uh with President uh, Lugo in Paraguay?
1: Well, it's really difficult to say at the moment. I mean, he seems pretty resilient, but Bol- the Bolivian situation seems a lot more dangerous due to the fact that, that the police are basically acting in such a rogue way. And, uh, you know, we can see with the, the coup in Venezuela in 2002, an attempt to take down Chavez, uh, and, and it doesn't matter if it's Caracas or Homs or Aleppo or Bangkok. You know, we know that uh, whenever there is a kind of a U.S.-funded uprising and the uh, the target government, you know, uh, is to be taken down without cost. Uh, I, I think uh, violence always comes to that. So you always have stories of mystery gunmen and uh, snipers and things like that. And and uh, I always tend to do this when I'm on air. But Land Destroyer Report has has covered that immensely in 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 Thailand and and, and elsewhere. You know, the use of uh, uh, mercenary and uh, groups and and CIA bankrolled snipers to basically uh, orchestrate a lot of the cases of violence. That's that is used to or leverage you know essentially so uh, it's really troubling and and I'll keep a close eye on the situation but we'll see what happens the reason I wanted to bring it up is just obviously it's very important there's a lot of talk on it uh, in the in the twitter sphere but we should be getting into the uh, the asia pacific stuff
0: uh, I'm not, probably, there's probably going to be a commercial break soon, so I'm not sure how deep in it is. There is, in fact, we're coming right yeah. up against that. So we will we will take a short break and, and recoup, and we'll we'll switch into Asia Pacific. But uh, but just on that note, of course, you bring up the 2002 attempted coup of Chavez, and it's important to remember how that t- transpired and how the uh, the Venezuelan media had been sort of circum- circumvented, and and they were broadcasting that this uh, this spontaneous uprising had occurred. But of course, it was a U.S. engineered coup, uh, military coup, or attempt at such, and uh, that exact same scenario has been floated in Syria, that, that something like that is going to occur if the, uh, the PSYOPs managers get their way. So we'll have to keep our eye on that. But for a moment, let's just take a, a short break. We'll be right back. We're, again, we're talking to Niall Bowie of NiallBowie.com. As the war in Iraq winds down and America begins to withdraw its forces from Afghanistan, the United States stands at a pivot point. Over the last 10 years, we have allocated immense resources to those two theaters. In the next 10 years, we need to be smart and systematic about where we invest time and energy so that we put ourselves in the best position to sustain our leadership, secure our interests, and advance our values. One of the most important tasks of American statecraft over the next decade will therefore be to lock in a substantially increased investment, diplomatic, economic, strategic, and otherwise in the Asia-Pacific region. Well, so writes Hillary Clinton in the pages of Foreign Policy, that from back in November of 2011, and echoing remarks that she has given at the APEC conference last year and other places. So I think it's... Pretty clear to say that the American empire is turning its attention to the Asia-Pacific region, becoming more and more important, of course, with the growing power, military and otherwise of China, although their economy does seem to be faltering now. We'll see what really comes of that. But certainly the Asia-Pacific region is where the, uh, the battlefield of the 21st century may well be. Whether that's an economic battlefield or an actual literal battlefield, I suppose, remains to be seen. But tonight we're talking to Niall Bowie of NileBowie.com, who is based in, in Malaysia and who is reporting on all sorts of geopolitics around the globe, including, of course, the Asia-Pacific region. So, Niall, I'm not sure exactly where you'd like to start tackling this topic, but, uh, but the floor is open. Let's start talking about Asia-Pacific and its uh, strategic importance.
1: Sure, sure. So, as you pointed out with Hillary's manifesto, you know, it's pretty challenging for me to get through without cracking a, a smile or, you know, at some of the things she says. But, but yes, the, the Asia-Pacific region is uh, an area of extreme uh, importance uh, economically, uh, strategically, and, and, and in many ways. So uh, what we have happening now uh, in, in various countries is not so much it's, – it's, it's a U.S.-China proxy war. Uh, that's that's what's going on. So uh, it's not so much directed at China within China's borders. Uh, it's it's targeting Chinese economic uh, interests around the world, predominantly in Africa. Uh, many Chinese uh, investments going into uh, many different African countries, such as the Congo, for example, like uh, uh, this was happening concurrently with the Kony 2012 thing, and now the African Union troops who have been deployed to Central Africa that now, can rain freely in, in four different uh, countries uh, and many things like that. And I think the, the the program for a lot of these things and Nigeria as well is is another area where China has extreme uh, interest that is being uh, pretty much so systematically destabilized. I mean, there's so much to get into, but uh, if we look at what happened in Libya, for example, right? So uh, the 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 the, uh, many Chinese businesses had a, had a strong presence in Libya prior to the fall of Muammar Gaddafi. So, uh, when the NTC took over, for example, uh, many of those contracts were contested, and many uh, of the countries that helped bring that government, the NTC, to power, uh, to give it its legitimacy, were basically given first uh, first dibs for a lot of the uh, the oil contracts and and things like that. So. Uh, when the unrest started in Libya, you had an exodus of, of Chinese uh, workers and things like that, and as far as I know, uh, as far as I can see, they have not returned. So that is the idea. It's a scorched-earth policy, uh, and it's designed to interrupt China's economic projects around the world. Now, outside of Africa, uh, what we're seeing in terms of destabilization is very very critical in Pakistan right now, uh, particularly in, in the Baluchistan state. Uh, where the Chinese are constructing a trading port uh, in, in the port of Guadar, and uh, also in Myanmar. We'll talk about that uh, in a little while. But in terms of the Asia-Pacific region, the U.S. government has recently unveiled uh, a defense strategic guidance report. It's the 2012 Defense Strategic Guidance Report called Sustaining U.S. Global Leadership, Priorities for the 21st Century for 21st century defense. So the document quite openly calls for drastically increasing U.S. military muscle in the Asia-Pacific region, specifically to counter China's growing role in the region, which is now the second largest economy, and, and many, many economists state that China has far surpassed the United States in many ways, and that wouldn't really surprise me. So Leon Panetta was recently in Singapore. It was the 11th annual uh, Shangri-La Dialogue, its defense summit in Singapore where he officially announced plans to reposition 60% of the U.S. Navy to the region by 2020. He's also called for the expansion of American alliances with defense treaty partners in in the Asia-Pacific region. So that's Australia, Japan, New Zealand, Philippines, and South Korea. So we know uh, to focus a little bit on Australia, uh, because this is a front not a lot of people are talking about. So I'm sure most of your listeners know that late last year, Obama quite boldly told the Australian people that America's military presence in Darwin was here to stay. So that will be a permanent force of uh, 2500 US military uh, US Marines, excuse me, that are being built up in the in the Northern Territory in Darwin over the period of a couple of years, I believe. So they've already started that. Now Australia as well is in the, is in the midst of expanding its own military operations. So I looked at a, a 2009 Australian Ministry of Defense report. It's entitled Defending Australia in the Asia-Pacific Century, which reminds one of Clinton's Manifesto, which you referenced. Okay, so, it comes as no surprise that as part of this agenda, Julia Gillard uh, of Australia's labor government has approved a $100 billion program to purchase advanced military hardware from the United States. So that's F-35 jets, submarines, amphibious warships, and what have you.
0: And so it starts to heat up, but on that note, we're coming up against another break, so we'll take another short breather, but we'll be right back once again talking to Nile Bowie, NileBowie.com.
1: You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network, because you can handle the truth.
0: Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. This is James Corbett of corporatereport.com. Tonight we're talking to Niall Bowie of niallbowie.com about all things Asia Pacific. And just before the break, we were talking about, for example, some of the investments and alliances that are being woven in that region, including uh, the marine presence in Darwin, Australia. Twenty five hundred marines to be rotated into uh, Darwin, and uh, some of the Australian uh, aspects of, of that plan. Well, let's let's throw in another place as well, because just last week, uh, the Washington Declaration was signed by U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta and New Zealand Defense Minister Jonathan Coleman, that uh, some critics of that treaty has said that it makes uh, New Zealand a de facto ally of the U.S., and once again, just bolsters the U.S.'s uh, support in that region. So again, it continues to, to mount, as obviously America is turning its attention to that region. So now let's uh, let's pick up from there.
1: Well, certainly, I think both Australia and New Zealand. I spent a lot of time in Australia uh, just recently. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic country, but I think a lot of the people there were really um, were really uh, taken aback by this, you know, uh, bold insistence of Obama. You know that that the U.S. military would be would be there to stay in Northern Australia, and they they a lot of people in that country do not agree with it. Certainly, uh, and as as I mentioned before, it's part of the two thousand nine. Australian Ministry of Defense report. That's Defending Australia in the Asia Pacific Century Force 2030. Uh, and as a, as a result of this, this, uh, policy that's been implemented, uh, implemented, uh, Julia Gillard's labor government has, has approved a hundred billion dollar program to purchase advanced military hardware from the United States. So, uh, these are a whole range of different things. And, and I, I, I've noticed that a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Journalists, they, they they tend to ask questions. For example, I, I was watching live on TV when Obama and uh, Julia Gillard were discussing this, and a lot of uh, journalists were asking questions like, "Is this to combat the rise of China?" and and the general response is, you know, total denial. It's you know, we were here to you know help China peacefully develop and take its place you know as a world power. And just in the report itself, it says China's rise in economic, political, and military terms has become more evident. Pronounced military modernization in the Asia Pacific region is having significant implications for a strategic outlook. And, and several, um, s- several, uh, Chinese military officials as well have basically called it out for what it is. And what it is, it's, it's, uh, it's a provocation to, to China and Chinese interest in the region. And ultimately, Australia is playing a very tricky game here for its defense purposes. You know, it's, for, for, for defense, it's completely, uh, completely aligning with the U.S. military industrial complex. and For its own economic viability, it relies on Chinese trade and demand in many ways. And uh, just briefly, I want to reference a study that was conducted by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission that reported that half of the indigenous population in the Northern Territory do not have access to adequate social services that are basically available to everybody else. Uh, Various communities are unable to even access potable water. You know, many Aboriginal communities that I've visited, they suffered from a lack of affordable health services and, and many preventable diseases such as trachoma, which affects the eyes. Uh, and uh, the rural infrastructure and housing available to them is of poor quality or basically non-existent. So, uh, so far as the government in Canberra is concerned, uh, who oversees basically the arrest of Aboriginals on a figure that far surpasses that of apartheid South Africa, I mean, their allegiances are evidently not not to the Australian population, but to mining enterprises and, and weapons manufacturers. I mean, clearly for them, owning amphibious warships is, is more of a priority, uh, you know, uh, for the leadership in that country who are now more than ever playing junior to uh, American authority in the region. So it's, it's really troubling developments to see what's happening there.
0: But, but Niall, now that they're getting all this investment from, from America for their, their military infrastructure, I'm sure they'll be able to free up more funds to go to those aboriginal communities.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: I'm sure that'll happen. <laughs> I, I, yes. I, I
1: doubt it. I doubt it. Anyway. Well, um, we shouldn't
0: jest, but but certainly it is uh, absolutely worrying to see the, the emphasis on the military side of things, but perhaps not, not surprising. So let's let's address the, the billion-person elephant in the room, which is China, and we use all of this language to describe it, talking about containment, talking about proxy wars. The obvious historical analog here is the Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union. Is that basically what we're looking at?
1: I think it's interesting as well to see how the world is being essentially split over issues such as Syria, for example. So it's being split more or less along Cold War lines, which I think is really interesting. And um, I think uh, I, I read a report recently that talked about the idea of the BRICS as a, as, a, as a alternative to the IMF world order, whatever you want to call it, you know, Anglo-American Empire, whatever you want to call it. So um, basically what the report pointed out was that you know, is this really a viable alternative? You know, what is to stop these countries who, you know, oversee some pretty dubious, uh, you know, uh, regulations and human rights in their own countries? What is to stop them from, you know, if if they were to obtain uh, the same sort of power and influence that the United States has now, what is to stop them from, you know, acting just as belligerent? And I think that is a a point that not a lot of people are, are talking about. But, you know, I think uh, as it stands now with respect to Syria and the stance that, you know, uh, Russia and China have taken on the issue, uh, I think it's it's uh, very uh, it's the right decision to take, uh, considering the fact that, as we know, uh, the New York Times recently confirmed what the alternative media has been reporting for over a year, that the C- American CIA is operating in southern Turkey, and they are arming the uh, members of the Free Syrian Army, and with those members of the Free Syrian Army, you have uh, al- al-Qaeda, uh, Salafist fighters, and uh, those, you know, incredibly uh, you know, despicable individuals who carried out things like the Hula Massacre, which, by the way, were targeting pro-Assad families, uh, members of the, the Alawite and uh, Shia communities, which are the, the, the uh, religious minorities in that country. Uh, so all of this is really troubling. And it springs, board, uh, springs, uh, it springs into so many different issues, is what I'm trying to say, basically. So it's really difficult to see where this is going to go. Um, but certainly the situation in Syria, I, I think you mentioned in the email that you wanted to get into that a little bit. You know, um, we, can, we can try and fit that into the show. But I just want to talk about Myanmar here because it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty crucial to get into this. So as of about two weeks ago, uh, sectarian violence has gotten pretty serious in eastern Myanmar. That's the state of Rakhine. Uh, primarily between Buddhist villagers and members of the Rohingya, which is a Muslim ethnic minority group who uh, has basically been long marginalized in Myanmar. And it's, it's true that they are not recognized as citizens due to their Bangladeshi ancestry. Myanmar is a, a pretty huge country and, and very multicultural and things like that. And, and uh, predom- predominantly the, the main ethnic group, the Barmar, uh, which is what Burma is named after, uh, they have... Basically, they oversee all the, the government, bureaucratic, political affairs, and whatever else. So uh, these Rohingyas have not been recognized as citizens, and this infighting, which has not been perpetuated by the government, although uh, the, the the failure of you know handling the situation is being leveraged against them in various ways at this very sensitive time in Myanmar. Uh, I, I think a lot of the infighting is is perpetuated by warring tribes and la- la- likely provocateurs. So. It's important to point out that this just happens to be taking place around a region called Sitwe, where the Chinese are trying to establish a port and the start of a Sino-Myanmar pipeline, something that is highly contested by U.S. interests and their proxies. And Obviously, I'm referring to Aung San Suu Kyi. Suu Kyi has worked with uh, U.S.-based NGOs to effectively halt the construction of the Chinese mid Dam Project, and that dam Uh, uh, through various ways they've managed to uh, uh, basically uh, put this dam's construction on hold. That dam would have uh, provided power primarily to southwest China, but also to Myanmar to some extent. And the project is crucial for uh, China's interior and the energy challenges it faces due to the violence in the region uh, and uh, environmental concerns raised by local residents and and obvious Western pressure on the government, who is now, you know, slowly being given a seat at the table as they implement reforms, you know, that that new government in Myanmar in the past two years has, has made more reforms in the past than the previous government had done in the past 20 years, so uh, the project was put on hold for that reason, and naturally this is a, a, a source of tremendous, ir- tremendous ir- irritation for Beijing, and Uh, The the Chinese project in Sitwe would have been a twin oil and gas pipeline. It would traverse Myanmar, and it would link China's southwestern Yunnan province with the Indian Ocean. So that would consequently provide China with land-based access to energy imports from Africa and the Middle East. And uh, these... Infrastructural investments and things like that are designed to counter U.S. naval dominance. Beijing does not want to be completely reliant on commercial shipping routes, so it's expanding its land-based operations as part of its overall strategy, and that's what we're seeing more and more. I also want to point out that Sichue is referred to as one of the pearls in The String of Pearls, as cited by the U.S. Strategic Studies Institute and the U.S. Army War College in their article, String of Pearls, Meeting the Challenges of China's rising power across the Asian littorials. So the report also mentions, as I spoke about before, the strategic importance of Gwadar, Pakistan, the state of Balochistan, uh, where the Chinese are constructing a port that would be incredibly vital to their economy. Similar situation, and more on that uh, later this week, if you check my site, I'll have a, a or Global Research TV, for example. I, I'm, I've conducted an interview with Eric Draitzer of StopImperialism.com, where we get into Pakistan's situation uh, in, in at Great details, so uh, keep an eye out for that. So imports such as minerals, uh, other raw materials from Africa, as well as oil from the Middle East, would be shipped through this port in Sichue for sale uh, on the Chinese market. And it's for this reason, re- it's for that reason that this area, this, this strategic region in Myanmar, is of crucial uh, significance to Chinese economic development. And uh, as we've seen, the Rohingyas have now started fleeing Myanmar for Bangladesh, and thousands, uh, they're afraid of prosecution so they get into boats you know uh, and now they've they've been turned back from Bangladesh so it's creating a, a refugee situation uh and uh it's extremely troubling to to watch this all unfold and naturally uh as situe and the rest of Rakhine state descends into chaos the international community may clamor for some sort of intervention the port the pipeline and other projects you know they would not be able to continue as planned
0: Surprise, surprise. Yeah, exactly as we saw China's uh, oil investments in Libya being attacked, first of all, during the instability there. And if you go to the the, the Western and Western allied media, this is, of course, the way that it's all being portrayed. It's being portrayed as a Chinese situation. So, so for example, the Asahi Shinbun today uh, here in Japan running a story, a Reuters story, Human Rights Group says China has forced refugees back to Myanmar conflict zone, basically castigating China for... uh, Forcing all of these refuge refugees back to Myanmar, Myanmar, and uh, uh, where is this all sourcing to? Of course, it's Human Rights Watch, the New York-based NGO that's been behind so much and, and been a cheerleader for so many other types of uh, interventions. Of course, they don't necessarily call for the interventions, but they make them possible by creating that that context for them. And uh, I'm just looking at this as a article, and of course, all of the related articles are, are about Suki Onsen uh, Suki and how what a wonderful person she is. So, so I think we the, see uh, exactly the heroine of humanity. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we see how the media lines up in all of this. So, it, I mean, it it makes one wonder. I mean, Beijing can't have failed to notice that this is a, a consistent pattern in all of their uh, interests and their investments around the world. I mean, why aren't they? At more actively attempting to call this out or, or draw attention to this.
1: Well, I think you know uh, the Chinese market as well as is heavily reliant on on many different countries. The uh, United States, for example, uh, for its for its exports and things like that. And I think uh, those two economies are still uh, in 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 a lot of ways linked. Um, so as we 're seeing different things, you know, for example, Australia is now economically taking on a similar role that the United States has with China, a similar relationship. Uh, I think as China, even though the economy has slowed down to something like seven percent you know anyone who 's taken basic economics knows that if you 're doing uh, just four percent development a year it 's excellent, so seven is like you know fantastic so uh, even though it 's slowed a little bit from its ten percent it 's twelve percent you know uh, i, I don 't think that uh, I don't think we should really believe the reports of an epic, you know, slowdown or anything like that. But you know, it's 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 difficult to see why the Chinese haven't called these things out. But you know, you have to do uh, in, in such a public way, for example. But you have to look at some of the statements, like, uh, for example, uh, the Chinese said, "I believe around last year that if uh, if Pakistan is is targeted, uh, we'll consider any attack on Pakistan uh, an attack on China." And well, since then, uh, I mean. Uh, uh, there's been several different drone strikes and uh, things like that happening. I think this, th- they released that statement after the uh, the assassination of Osama bin Laden, alleged whatever, took place there in uh, in Pakistan. So, uh, just with respect to the Kachin situation, the increased violence in the region is uh, is understood to be a serious threat to the stability and and consequently the viability and and the the security of the Chinese pipeline, which which has to travel through. Kachin before, you know, ending its, its its point in southwest China. And uh, as I have reports here in front of me saying that the Chinese have reportedly paid Burmese, uh, Myanmarese soldiers, whatever you want to call them, to provide additional security for the project in the light of uh, recent violence, because the Kachin rebels in northern Myanmar have reportedly stepped up their operations with an eye on separatism. So this is longstanding. And and don't forget the, uh, the uh, British colonialists who were, Administered that country for decades, they, they sent anthropologists in to meticulously document the, the, the different, uh, varying differences and, and, and uh, tribal differences between a lot of these hill tribes, and uh, they know exactly what buttons to push. They did this in all their colonies. I recently looked at uh, a detailed uh, ethnic breakdown of, of Malaysia, you know, during the colonial times, and and uh, the. The British colonialists, uh, they, they know exactly what buttons to pr- push. And at the time, you know, these days we have the Friends of Syria, but at the time they had the Friends of the Burmese Hill Peoples. So this was basically a group designed to, uh, just as we're seeing today, funnel material assistance to these groups with an eye on, you know, taking down the government of Aung San, uh, who was Aung San Suu Kyi's father who was later assassinated. Uh, but basically the idea is there's, there's evidence if you really look into it that the colonialists wanted to basically strangle this country in the cradle. Uh, and, and as a result of that, you know, Myanmar has unfortunately been under a very paranoid military dictatorship for, for, uh, several decades, but now that has transitioned into a more coherent leadership. Uh, and I, I would hope that that leadership, you know, uh, just, uh, minds itself, you know, it minds its, uh, its relations with the United States. And, uh, and and you know is not shy to assert its sovereignty. You know I, I think that's that's certainly important uh, because if you look at Myanmar, extremely rich country in terms of its natural resources, it's been called the last investment hub in Asia. Uh, so, not to mention you have the the the, the chances of you know uh, an exploitative mission in that country. Look at all the the, the cheap labor. I mean it's it's uh, it's basically waiting you know waiting there uh, uh, for. Uh, corporate pillaging, I think, in a lot of ways, to put it, you know, bluntly. But um, it's really troubling what's going on there, the situation. But um, uh, we have a commercial break coming
0: up, I, I would imagine. That's exactly right. We are coming up against the final break, so we will be back to wrap things up with Niall Bowie right after this. Once again, talking about the Asia-Pacific century. If you want to visit his uh, website, I've been saying niallbowie.com, but perhaps niallbowie.blogspot.com will be more reliable to get you there. But at any rate, we will be back just after these messages. We are back here in the final moments of Corporate Report Radio for this Tuesday night edition of the broadcast. Tonight we've been talking to Niall Bowie, and you can reach him at niallbowie.blogspot.com to see more of his reporting, and it also appears in publications like globalresearch.ca and the Land Destroyer Report and other places besides, so I hope you'll follow some of that for some of his other work. Just in the final few minutes here, Niall, I want to touch on something that, that... Kind of has come up tangentially in our conversation, and that's the idea of the false dialectic that we're often put into when we start arguing from an anti-imperialist-type uh, perspective. We often get caught in the situation where it seems like, for example, we're arguing positively for the government of, of uh, Assad in Syria or we're arguing for the military junta in, in Myanmar or whatever the case may be, when in fact what we're arguing is arguing against an intervention from from the usual imperialist sources. What do you make of that that false dialectic and what, what do you think do we need to be cautious about the types of statements we make when we're arguing against the imperialist agenda? Well,
1: that's, that's a really excellent question, James. Well, Basically, I, uh, for a lot of my news, you know, I, I like to look at what different analysts say on different subjects. So I, I check out Press TV, I check out Russia Today, uh, and various other independent uh, publications and things like that. And uh, I notice that some of the analysts in particular, uh, I don't want to name names or anything like that, but uh, they, they certainly come to, come to uh, interpret things, uh, especially with the situation in Syria, in a pro-Assad way, and these are these are Western analysts and things like that. So uh, I think it's I think what we need to point out here is the fact that uh, the situation in Syria, for example, uh, this is a government that uh, is is not democratically elected. Not I personally have a lot of problems with the democratic system. I think it's totally flawed, but uh, we'll get into that uh, another time. It's a big conversation, but but. Uh, uh, there's, we can't deny the oppressive nature of that, of that government, you know, with its respect to censorship and, and, uh, and things like that. Uh, obviously, Assad received his, uh, his power dynastically, uh, which, which I certainly don't agree with. Uh, but my focus in talking about Syria is, is an emphasis on the, on the uh, prevention of, of uh, you know, an external security threat uh, to, to that country. Uh, as we saw what happened in Libya and and countless different uh, incidents around the world, um, you know we we are told that that NATO is going to enforce a no-fly zone to protect civilians. And you know how many bombs do they drop? And and look what the, look what kind of state that country is in at the moment. So uh, as a writer, as an analyst, uh, my my focus has been on uh, finding ways to defuse the conflict in Syria. I mean, I've had. To be honest, I had nightmares when I looked at the photos from what happened in Hula. I mean, extremely disturbing stuff. And, and I spent many sleepless nights just thinking about, you know, what kind of ways, this is probably not what a typical 23 year old is spending their time thinking about, but what kind of ways can be done to basically persuade these, these, uh, death squads, is exactly what they are, to, to step down and, and, and how can conflict be diffused? And I think too often as well, a lot of the, uh, the alternative, uh, uh, analysts have have put such a large focus on just kind of uh, regurgitating the same information. Like, yes, we know you know these uh, these uh, very dubious organizations are involved in arming the Free Syrian Army, and that's always good to touch on. But there's a general lack of emphasis on solutions and things like that. And I hear the the, the show's about the end, so unfortunately, to, so yeah. yeah. There's a lot to talk about, so I would love to come on Unfortunately,
0: yeah, and, and absolutely, I think you're exactly right. We have to not just point out the flaws in what's happening, but we have to point positively at solutions, which is something that we try to come back to in this broadcast, but we're fresh out of time for tonight, so we're going to have to leave it there. But I certainly do hope people will check out nilebowie.blogspot.com and we'll check out some of your articles and works on this in the past and, and look forward to more in the future. So, Nile Bowie, thank you again for your time tonight. Great speaking to you, James. Have a great day. You too. All right, and thank you to all of you out there for listening. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I will be back here, same time, same station, tomorrow night. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care.